Welcome back to the lectures on quantitative methods, psychometrics, and public service. And in this lecture, I'll be working through chapter six, Empirical Estimates of Reliability, from the text Psychometrics, an introduction by Michael Furr. In the previous lecture, we looked at the theoretical bases of reliability. And in this chapter, we're going to look at some ways to estimate reliability. And uh, what that what the different procedures are and what assumptions those procedures assume and some of the trade-offs across some of the different estimates that we can use to estimate reliability. So um, as Fur reminds us, um, reliability is a theoretical property of a test and cannot be computed directly in real testing situations. It is defined in terms of true scores and measurement error, which we can not ever actually know. So again, these are all going to be estimates of reliability, but we can never truly know the underlying true scores and underlying measurement error. So we'll show that given assumptions of classical test theory, Observed empirical test scores can be used to estimate score reliabilities and measurement error. Uh, Fur notes early on that uh, an important initial observation is that there is no single method that provides completely accurate estimates of reliability under all conditions. Just like with the previous chapter, a lot of this is going to depend on the assumptions and the trade-offs across them. So there are going to be a few different types of reliability. The first one we're going to look at is alternate forms reliability. Alternate forms reliability, sometimes called parallel forms reliability, is one method for estimating the reliability of test scores. And this is uh, you would obtain scores from two different forms of a test, and then test users can compute the correlation between the two forms and may be able to interpret the correlation as an estimate of the test reliability. However, these altern alternate forms of reliability uh, rely on the assumption that the two test forms are parallel. And you might remember from the previous chapter that for two tests to be parallel, they, have, they must be measuring the identical true scores, and they have the same amount of error variance. In addition, you might recall that the correlation between two parallel tests is exactly equal to the reliability of the test scores. Uh, but as we've talked about, um, parallel, the assumption of tests being parallel is a very strong one that we really don't believe we usually have. Um, and uh, Fur highlights this by saying, specifically, we can never be entirely confident that alternate forms of a test are truly parallel. This lack of confidence occurs because we can never truly know whether two forms of a test meet the very strict assumptions of class classical test theory and of the parallel tests. So... Um, as described in the previous chapter, as first says, a consequence of the two assumptions of a parallel test that the true scores are the same across the tests and the error variance, the error variance is the same, is that parallel tests will have identical observed score means and standard deviations. 
if we have two test forms that have similar means and standard deviations, and if we feel fairly confident in assuming that they are measuring the same construct, then we might feel that the forms are close enough to meeting the criteria for being parallel. If we feel that the two forms are close enough to being parallel, then we might feel comfortable computing the correlation between the test forms and using it as an estimate of reliability. Under these circumstances, we would have a form of reliability known as alternate forms reliability. But often, we're not going to have confidence in those uh, assumptions, maybe rarely, if ever, and uh, also having the opportunity to provide the, an alternate test to the same individuals uh, limits us in actually applied research. We don't often have the opportunity to get uh, alternate forms of the same test on a, as a score for the same individual. The next broad type of estimates is test-retest reliability. Uh, first says the test-retest method of estimating reliability avoids some problems with the alternate forms method and is potentially quite useful. For, measure, for measures of stable psychological constructs, such as intelligence or extroversion. Um, as mentioned, as first says, an important concern about the alternate forms method of estimating reliability is that alternate forms of a test have different contexts and therefore might actually measure different constructs. A different approach that we're looking at with test-retest is to have the same people take the same test on more than one occasion. If you can safely make several assumptions, then the correlations between the first test scores and the retest scores can be interpreted as an estimate of the test reliability. So with the, what we had with the alternate forms, have two tests that are different, but that are measuring the same uh, constructs. But that to, for that to be an alternate form, we had to have the same average true scores and the same average variance. Um, this simplifies it a little bit by you could just use the same test twice, give it to a person at time A and then wait and give it to them at time B. But this requires a couple of assumptions uh, for the test to retest uh, uh, to be a measure of reliability. Um, for highlights that there are three factors affecting our confidence um, in the idea that the scores will be stable over the two times at which the test is administered. The first is that some psychological attributes are likely to be less stable than others. So, uh, for example, if I gave you a psychometrics exam at week two and at week 10, even if it was the same test, your knowledge of psychometrics is likely to have changed, hopefully. Uh, the second factor affecting our confidence in this stability assumption is the length of the test-retest interval. So the longer the distance between time, um, the more we might be worried that the underlying attribute has changed. Uh, a third factor that might affect our confidence in this stability assumption is the period at which the interval occurs. It is possible that change is more likely to occur at some periods in an individual's life than at other periods. To summarize, the test-retest approach to reliability depends heavily on the assumption that true scores remain stable across the test-retest interval. For this reason, a test-retest correlation coefficient is sometimes referred to as a stability coefficient. If true scores are completely stable during the test-retest interval, 
or at least if the differences among participants' true scores remain stable, then the test-retest correlation reflects only one thing, the degree to which measurement, of error, uh, measurement error affects test scores. That is, if true scores are perfectly stable, then an imperfect correlation between observed scores indicates the degree to which measurement error affects the observed scores. The lower the test-retest correlation, the greater the effect of the measurement error and the lower the reliability of the test. Fur goes on to say, although the, although the alternate forms and test-retest approaches have solid theoretical foundations as methods for estimating reliability, they suffer from several practical difficulties. For example, as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, they require that at least two tests be given to the people being tested, um, but often when doing research, it's uh, challenging to give the same person two tests. And um, these assumptions here uh, are still pretty restrictive, and uh, so we might want to find a different way to think about reliability, uh, because as Fur says here, the alternate four methods and the test-retest method have somewhat limited applicability. So a third general approach uh, to estimating reliability is through internal consistency, which offers a useful practical alternative to the alternate forms procedure and the test-retest procedure. The internal consistency approach has the practical advantage of requiring respondents to complete only one test at only one point in time. Um, the internal consistency approach to estimating reliabilities can be used for composite scores. And the fundamental idea behind the internal consistency approach is that different parts of a test, items or groups of items, can be treated as different forms of a test. In many areas of behavioral science, the internal consistency approach is the most widely used method for estimating reliability. From the perspective of internal consistency, two fundamental factors affect the reliability of test scores. The first is the consistency among the parts of a test. If a test parts are strongly correlated with each other, then the test is likely to be reliable. That is, if the observed differences on one part of the test, one item, are consistent with the observed differences on the other part of the test, other items, then we are likely to conclude that the observed scores on the test as a whole are consistent with the true scores. There are three fairly well-known approaches to uh, internal consistency reliability, one being the split half approach, two being the raw alpha approach, and three being the standardized alpha approach. Each of these have significant shortcomings um, and will eventually lead us to a discussion on omega as a fourth approach that we will cover in a later chapter. But the basic idea here, before moving into each of these examples, is how correlated are the items on a test with one another? And the more highly correlated they are uh, when they're trying to measure one construct, one unidimensional construct, if they're all highly correlated, these different items that you might find, say, on a survey, if you have four or five questions about someone's job satisfaction, for example, four or five questions about someone's um, extroversion or introversion, or four or five questions that are measuring uh, your knowledge of reliability, for say, 
Um, if those things are highly correlated, if they vary together, you're likely to have internal uh, consistency, and internal consistency is uh, one way of thinking about reliability. So the first uh, approach is the split half estimates of reliability, um, and this is where we take a list of, of items and we cut them in half. It can either be even or odd questions, the beginning or end questions, and we see how correlated the one half of the measures are and their responses with the other half of the measures. Um, Fur goes on to say, because it is based on a correlation derived from within the test itself, the split half reliability estimate is called an internal consistency estimate of reliability. The premise is that if items on a test are similar to each other, then splitting the test into two parts in an appropriate way, this usually involves a procedure that is thought to produce a random assortment of items, should produce two parallel subtests. Unfortunately, the adequacy of this split half approach once again rests on the assumptions that the two halves are parallel tests. Uh, that is, the halves must have equal true scores and equal error variance, um, which again is a really strong assumption. And often your split half reliability might depend on whether you match the evens and the odds, every third item, the, the first half of the test and the second half. And the book highlights how, depending on which items you pick, can give you different measures of split half reliability, which suggests that the items or the subtest aren't really parallel. So the Two other methods, the coefficient, the raw coefficient alpha and the standardized alpha, are going to have at least two advantages over the split half method. So they'll be more recommended than the split half method. First, they use more information about the test than is used by the split half method. Second, they require fewer assumptions about the statistical properties of the items than do split half methods. Um, the raw coefficient alpha takes uh, an item level approach um, and uh, this is in contrast to the split half approach and um, in this way we conceive of each sub item of each item of the test each question of the test as a subtest consequently the associations among all of the items can be used to estimate the reliability of the complete test So this is the most, uh, maybe the most widely known item level internal consistency approach, and it can be seen as a two-step process. In the first step, item level and or test level statistics are calculated. Um, as mentioned earlier, different approaches use different kinds of information. Some approaches are based primarily on the associations among the items, but others use both item level information and information about scores on the complete test. In the second step, the item level and or test level information is entered into specialized equations to estimate the reliability of the complete test. Um, we begin here with the raw coefficient alpha, often called Kronbach's alpha, which is the most widely used. Um, and the book works through an example of how to calculate that. Um, essentially, you start with 
calculating the variance of the scores on the complete test, then calculating the covariance between each pair of items. After computing the covariances among all the items, or all the pairs of items, which are also known as pairwise covariances, we add them, we sum them together. The sum of the inter-item covariance reflects the degree to which responses to all of the items are generally consistent with each other, all else being equal. The larger the sum is, the more consistent the items are with each other. And then to get the estimate of Kronbach's alpha, we adjust this uh, uh, adding together of all the covariances by uh, the number of items in our, in our test and um, additionally by the, the overall test variance. So um, that gives us the Chromebox Alpha. Um, another method of estimating reliability is often called the generalized Spearman-Brown formula or the standardized alpha estimate. Uh, as its name implies, the method is highly related to the raw alpha, but there is an important difference. The standardized alpha is appropriate if a test score will be created by aggregating, summing, or averaging standardized responses to test items. That is, if test users plan to standardize or uh, z-score the responses to each item before summing or averaging them, then the standardized alpha provides the more appropriate estimate of reliability. So the standardized coefficient alpha is, uh, is used when you need to standardize different items with, say, z-scores. And in this example, um, we take the average correlation from all the item pairs, and we multiply it by the number of items, and then we divide that by 1 plus the number of items minus 1 times the average correlation. So the difference between the standardized uh, coefficient and the raw coefficient the raw coefficient is relying on covariance and the standardized Kronbach's alpha or the standardized uh, coefficient alpha, which is also known as the generalized Spearman-Brown formula, takes the average correlation across the items and adjusts it by the number of items that you're looking at. Okay, um, the book talks a little bit about Omega, which we're going to come back to later in the book. Um, and this is the basic idea that reliability is equal to the ratio of signal and signal plus noise. And uh, through factor analysis of participants' responses to a test, we can estimate both a signal value and a noise value for each item on the test. So we'll look at this later with factor loadings. Um, when we get to a more detailed treatment of factor analysis. Um, 
So uh, first says here, uh, on the assumptions underlying alpha and omega and the relative applicability of those indices, um, essentially the accuracy of alpha, omega, and all other estimates of reliability uh, depend on the validity of certain assumptions, as we've mentioned, and Uh, first says the short story is that there is no reason to suspect that alpha should in fact not be used as an index of reliability in many cases that are likely to be encountered by psychologists. Uh, that is, many psychometricians have argued that the appropriate use of alpha depends on assumptions that may rarely be valid in psychology. Let me say that again. The short story is that there is reason to suspect that alpha should in fact not be used as an index of reliability in many cases that are likely to be encountered by a psychologist. So there'll be a lot of cases in which alpha should not be used. The alpha method provides accurate estimates of reliability when test items are essentially tau equivalent or parallel. Um, and those assumptions are a bit more uh, restrictive than the cone generic methods that we've mentioned and uh, the cone generic assumptions about the types of tests and fortunately omega and several related indices is appropriate for a wider range of circumstances than alpha even when we don't have essentially tau or parallel tests whereas alpha is appropriate only when tests items meet the criteria for essentially tau equivalence or for being parallel Omega is appropriate when test items meet the criteria for being essential tau equivalent, parallel, or, or congeneric. Importantly, the criteria for being congeneric are less strict and thus more widely valid than the criteria for essentially tau equivalents or parallel tests. If a test includes congeneric items, then omega will accurately reflect reliability, but alpha will not. Uh, Fur goes on to say, we should also acknowledge that all eternal consistency methods might in some ways overestimate reliability to some degree. For example, because internal consistency methods are based on responses from only one measurement occasion, they fail to account for measurement error that transcends a single measurement occasion. <coughs> in sum, there are many methods for estimating the reliability of test scores. In fact, the methods that we have discussed in this chapter are merely the most popular. The accuracy of each method rests on a set of assumptions, and some methods are, rest on assumptions that are more easily satisfied than others. Test users and test developers are encouraged to examine the relevant assumptions carefully and to evaluate whether an alternate index, such as Omega, produces a more accurate estimate of reliability. For also reminds us that... Uh, that um, some test users are tempted to interpret a high level of internal consistency reliability as an indication that a test measures a single attribute, um, but uh, measures of internal consistency such as alpha should be thought of with caution, if at all, as measures of the conceptual homogeneity of test items. We really need to have our, uh, want to have our theory uh, guiding whether or not we have one dimension or not. Um, so, Fur goes on to highlight a couple of factors that affect the reliability of test scores. 
The first factor affecting an internal consistency reliability estimate is the consistency among the parts of the test. All else being equal, a test with greater internal consistency um, will have a greater estimated reliability. A second factor that affects a test reliability is the length of the test. All else being equal, a long test is more reliable than a short test. even though there are some practical limits to the benefits of adding more and more items to the test. If you add way too many items, you're going to have uh, item uh, survey fatigue and your respondents won't want to fill out all of the questions. So there's a balance between the number of items and fatigue and also the number of items and the return to uh, the return to helping improve the estimated reliability. Now there's a figure 6.4 in here that shows um, essentially after about uh, adding more than 10 items, the return to adding more items isn't particularly large. What goes on to talk about uh, different scores and some of the challenges with uh, estimating the reliability of, of different scores. Um, I'm not going to cover that in the lecture today, but the other thing that you should note is that there, despite different scores, say taking um, a measurement at uh, one time and then another time and then subtracting the first time from the second time, there are some real uh, issues associated with that. And I'm just going to uh, uh, note here the uh, <laughs> FERS uh, different score summaries. He says, our treatment of the different scores is consistent with most psychometric evaluations of different scores. It seems that most psychometricians and researchers perceive different scores as very problematic, partly because they tend to be less reliable than the test scores used in their computation. Indeed, it seems that many behavioral scientists are trained to mistrust different scores inherently. Thus, if you are a researcher, you might be wary of using differences, different scores in your work. You are likely to be told that you have committed an egregious error. Indeed, there are reasons to be concerned about the use of different scores in many cases. That is, our impression is that different scores do indeed suffer from potential problems in many applications. Whether due to high intercorrelations between the component tests, poor reliability of the component tests, or unequal variances in the component tests, we worry that different scores often have poor psychometric quality and lead to questionable psychological conclusions. Okay, um, here in just a broad overview of what we covered, this chapter has taken the theory of reliability and translated it into practice, as Fur tells us. Although test users can never truly know the reliability of a set of test scores, they can use a variety of procedures to estimate the reliability. In this chapter, we have discussed several of the most familiar and widely used methods for estimating reliability. These three general methods include alternate forms, test retest, and internal consistency. And as I mentioned earlier, the alternate forms is the, requires the most strict assumptions 
test retest the next uh, uh, most restrictive, uh, slightly less restrictive than the alternate forms test. And then internal consistency is less restrictive than the test retest. And with internal consistency, we have alpha and omega measures. Alpha requires more strict assumptions than omega, and therefore there are some challenges with using the Chromebox alpha and the standardized alpha. Um, and uh, we'll get to some improved ways of looking at this with the measures of omega a little later. From a variety of theoretical and practical reasons, internal consistency is the most popular method for estimating reliability. More specifically, the coefficient alpha is probably the most commonly reported estimate of reliability. Uh, from the perspective of internal consistency, two core factors affect reliability. All else being equal, reliability estimates are high for tests in which different parts are highly correlated with each other. That is, reliability is high for tests that are internally consistent. In addition, reliability estimates are higher for longer tests than for shorter tests, all else being equal. Okay, so we've laid out the theoretical basis of reliability, now provided some estimates of reliability, uh, and discussed some of their uh, assumptions required for them to be valid, some of the challenges with using these methods, um, and uh, this is something that we will we'll return to, and in the next chapter, we're going to talk about why it's important to keep refining our uh, estimates of reliability because uh, reliability is important to a number of psychometric issues that we're going to care about with test development and um, with, the, with the actual estimates of the true scores. Uh, all of these issues are uh, really important for um, getting good estimates of true scores and how confident we are in them. All right, that's all for uh, this chapter, um, chapter six, Empirical Estimates of Reliability. And the next lecture uh, will be chapter seven, The Importance of Reliability from First Text. And then we will move on to validity. Thanks for your attention.